When I was in eighth grade, Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace, was the most anticipated movie of my life. Star Wars fandom was at an all-time high. My teacher even took a break from class to play the teaser trailer the day it was released. My parents knew this was the most important movie of my life, and somehow allowed me to take the day off from school to head down to the local theater and wait in line for hours. My small town didn't have a midnight premiere, so instead we waited in line in the morning for the noon showing. My friend's mom brought us Phantom Menace adorned Taco Bell soda and food. You would unwrap a pog-sized token from each soda lid that promised amazing prizes or a free taco. It was easily the happiest I had ever been, waiting for what surely would be the greatest movie of all time. Welcome to Bespin Ice Cream Stand. I'm Josh O'Rourke, and with me as always, Droid Army Supreme Commander, Bennett Campbell Ferguson. Hello! Droid Army Supreme Commander, does that make me uh, uh, the heir to the General Grievous mantle? Yeah, exactly. I wanted to test your metal. Pun intended. So, um... Watch the situation, Captain! <laughs> Please talk like that for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> I, I, I will i will as long as long as my my vocal cords allow <laughs> i have faith in you the year was 1999 the euro was officially adopted bill clinton was acquitted in his impeachment proceedings and the matrix was at top on the box office ben what's your star review of the phantom menace well josh it's a, a whopping two stars and that's a little higher than I uh, initially thought. <laughs> that's incredible because my review also is two. I, I thought about bucking the trend and going three, but then I kept thinking about all the scenes that just pissed me off so much. So I thought two star, and um, I'll let you talk about it first, but I'll explain mine after. Okay, well, I mean, the reason I go with two stars is because my attitude about the, the prequels in general is, you know, let's not pretend... There's nothing cool about them. I mean, they're like, you know, truly transcendent, beautiful cinematic moments in those films. I mean, like, like I think I've, I've rarely seen anything so beautiful as that, you know, shot in Attack of the Clones where it's just like Anakin and Padme's uh, silhouettes on the side of the Lars homestead. But on the other hand, it's like, let's not pretend that, you know, these movies were, you know, anything but monumentally disappointing. I mean, when I hear like, like prequels apologists, I always think, you know, have you seen the movie? You know, have you actually, like, sat through and, like, watched them recently? Because I have, and it's really, really fucking hard, you know? I mean, like, I, you know, I watched The Phantom Menace, uh, you know, just this year, and it's really painful. I mean, you sit through, like, all this, you know, atrocious acting and, and dialogue and, and, you know, in some cases beautiful, but in many cases, you know, ugly visuals to get to the pod race and then you sit through more boring crap to get to the duel with Darth Maul. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you, I think you nailed it though. It, it's like, there's some incredible set pieces, but that's yes. the only part that's enjoyable. And then you have all these sort of meandering parts where you're like, well, what am I watching? Why do I care about say politics or certain characters? Um, yeah, it's, it's for me, it's like the opening sequence is kind of cool. Uh, the pod race is cool, but a little too long for me. And the final battle is just awesome. 
and then everything else is yes. sort of in between stuff. Yeah, and, and I think you know part of that is, you know, I was uh, I was just rewatching. I watched just the pod race last night to prepare for this, and I think that's a you know beautifully edited and, and choreographed scene and the the effects of course are are great and you know when i see something that inventive i my instant reaction is you know oh my god the prequel trilogy is so much better than the sequel trilogy but then you know when i get to one of the character scenes and the prequel trilogy and you'll know, see how disengaged you know liam neeson and natalie portman are you know, I, I, I then i start thinking the sequels are better because it's like well you know i would way rather spend you know, two hours with Ray and Finn because at least they're charming and, you know, John Boyega and Daisy Ridley seem like they're enjoying being in Star Wars. Yeah, so. no, no, big time. I think that's my biggest problem with the whole prequel trilogy is I don't really care about the characters that much other than Obi-Wan exactly. just because it's a great character. Ewan McGregor is incredible regardless. Totally. Um, and I think this is uh, probably discussion for another podcast entirely, but... I think that it was just a mistake to start episode one when they started it and to not make Obi-Wan the focus of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see, I have, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, get off on too much of a tangent because the tangent I'm about to go on, I could go on for a really long time. But my, like, perfect, like, kind of fan version of the Phantom Menace would, you know, I would I would almost do it more like a, a buddy cop movie between Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon and Qui-Gon is the maverick, or is the is the sort of maverick, and Obi-Wan is a bit more straight-laced. You play up that conflict, and you know, like over the course of the film, you know, Obi-Wan's journey is becoming more like Qui-Gon, and you know, being more drawn to his interpretation of the Force. So you actually have a journey that you know not only kind of makes the film cohere, but then gets Obi-Wan believably to the point where he's willing to take uh, Anakin on as his apprentice. Because at, at the end of the Phantom Menace, you know, I don't, I, I'd never believe that, you know, Obi-Wan would train Anakin just because Qui-Gon died. I feel like all Obi-Wan's reasons for, you know, not wanting to train Anakin, I, I just find it totally ab absurd that they would go away, you know, just because Qui-Gon gets killed. And that's, I mean, that's, you know, to part me, of the course it, for the people. To me, it happened, a lot of things in the movie happen because they're supposed to happen, not because it seems like... It's character driven, or even plot. Well, it is plot driven, but uh, not organically. It's exactly this needs to happen, so it just happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, just, I mean, just like how you know Luke and Leia have to be born, so you know Anakin and Padme have to get together, even though the actors have no chemistry and the characters don't even make sense as a as a couple. You know. They, they wouldn't even make sense for, like, a one-night stand, you know, so <laughs> let alone getting married. I, I think uh, I think George Lucas probably set a deadline for himself and then uh, thought, I'm doing it all myself, and it will be done by May 19th or whatever, you know, whenever it came out. Um, but, but ultimately, that's my big problem with the whole prequel trilogy, but especially the first one, uh, is this is what happens if you have an unlimited budget and you're unchecked, and you make exactly the movie you want to. And that's what George yes. Lucas did. He made exactly the movie he thought people wanted to see. I, I think the big problem for me is that this movie is sort of about George Lucas's ego going unchecked. That he has unlimited funds, and he's going to make exactly the movie he wants to make. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, he was, it's no secret, you know, he was very, very, you know, hurt by how... 
uh, you know, how the production went on a, a New Hope. You know, he was exhausted. He was, you know, demoralized by the limits of the technology. He was demoralized by how he was treated by the the crew. So he, he created his, you know, own, you know, perfect cloistered universe where he could do whatever he wanted and he had the money to do that. But the, the problem it was, was that it was so cloistered and he was so powerful that, you know, there was no one, I think, to really really challenge him and and question him and and i you know like i truly truly believe he's one of the greatest filmmakers who have ever lived but i mean you know filmmaking is a is a team sport you know no no matter you know how intense and you know idiosyncratic the auteur you're you're dealing with is and and george lucas is an auteur but the fact remains that, you know, you go back to A New Hope. I mean, that, you know, film was, you know, there was an uncredited rewrite by uh, Gloria Katz and Willard Hike who uh, rewrote American Graffiti. So it's like, like, no wonder the, the dialogue in that film is, is way better than the prequels. You know, he had his, uh, you know, wife at the time, Marsha Lucas, who was, you know, an editor on A New Hope and also Return of the Jedi. And, you know, a lot of the best ideas were hers i mean it, she was the one who uh you know slowed down yoda's death scene and you know made that scene as powerful as it was and that's one of my favorite scenes in the not just the entire trilogy but all of star wars so i i think yeah i think i think the problem is there there was no one to push back and i think the actors either didn't you know feel like they could or were just so you know kind of lost in this this sea of you know blue or green screen that they you know were were just totally out of it i, I just you had so many bad factors uh colliding and i just i i don't think i don't think anything could have changed that you know short of you know maybe like getting uh you know lawrence kasdan to rewrite that crap and you know <laughs> hiring actors who were you know willing to shout at george a bit more or something no for sure it all feels sort of like um everyone was excited to be on the movie so why would you rock the boat or say hey george really and i mean i think the very you know thing that we're we're kind of reacting against the the fact that they're so infused with george lucas's sensibility is also what makes them interesting because you know, it is interesting to kind of, you know, puzzle over the themes he's obsessed with. You know, it's interesting to to look at his his politics. And as I've been, you know, thinking about, you know, the the prequels, you know, preparing to do this, I've realized that even if, you know, the the execution of the the political subplots is is pretty clunky, you know, you actually look at the substance of what he's, you know, saying about uh, demagoguery and how you know, a, a democracy deteriorates into fascism, basically, you know, a lot of that's, a lot of that's really interesting. And that, that doesn't mean the films work as works of art, you know, just because they have interesting ideas, but it's, I mean, that's not to be dismissed either. I mean, I mean, let's face it, you know, the prequels are better, frankly, than most big budget movies that come out today. Yeah, I mean, ultimately it was, if you had never seen the movie and you saw it for the first time, still pretty fun. Yeah. And I think I, you have to view them separately from the original trilogy, too. I mean, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I mean to say the original trilogy is like this hallowed, sacred text or whatever, and you have to sort of view the prequel trilogy as 
if you want related. I don't know if I see it that way, but um, you have to view it as as a different entity. It's like like the Harry Potter movies versus the books. <laughs> yes, you know, yeah. it's it's like yeah, they're related, but it's not the same thing. Yeah, and I think if you can be detached from nostalgia and the original trilogy, especially, um, uh, you can view the prequel trilogy. With with a little less cynicism, I think. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and also just, I mean, to to put it bluntly, if I, you know, if I really truly believed that the, uh, or, or, or if if I really truly believed that the original trilogy took place in the same universe as Jar Jar Binks and Canto Bite, I think I'd just be depressed beyond belief. So <laughs> there's that too. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like, ultimately, uh, the prequel trilogy is what I go back to the least. Sure. But when I do watch it, I think, like, okay, what what's good about this? Yeah. And, and there are moments that are good. But, yeah, having said that, especially episode one has a lot of parts that, if I'm just watching it casually, I'm going to fast forward. If there's any scene in the Star Wars prequels that evokes the visceral magic of George Lucas's early films, it's the pod race in The Phantom Menace. Imaginatively choreographed, beautifully edited, and packed with glorious how-the-fuck-did-they-do-that special effects, it shoves aside Lucas's meanderings about midi-chlorians and interstellar trade policy, exchanging them for the sheer joy of speed that animated THX 1138, American Graffiti, the original Star Wars trilogy, and Lucas's own childhood. Clarity and emotion are the forces that set the pod race apart from most modern action scenes. Lucas understands that actions means, action means nothing if we can't see what's happening, or if we don't understand what's at stake. Clarity is a concept too often devalued by 21st century filmmakers. Many seem to believe that if they cut faster, the audience's pulse will race faster, but it doesn't work that way. There's a reason why the opening scene car chase in the 2008 James Bond film Quantum of Solace is a proverbial punching bag for action obsessives. It's cut so fast that there's no time to appreciate Bond's daredevilry behind the wheel. By contrast, the pod race is a colossus of coherence. Mr. Lucas uses a vast variety of shots to convey the geography of the scene. Everything from wide shots that establish the scope of the race and to point-of-view shots that show us Anakin Skywalker's terrifying vantage point from his speeding pod, and editors Ben Burtt and Paul Martin Smith let each shot last as long as it takes for us to follow the action. Mr. Lucas also establishes rules for the scene, and he sticks to them. There is one track, and the racers must circle it three times. After Anakin completes his first lap, C-3PO helpfully says, He has to complete two more circuits? Oh dear. By seeing the racers pass the same landmarks multiple times, including a treacherous tunnel and a posse of trigger-happy Tusken Raiders, Mr. Lucas gives us the chance to remember and anticipate specific threats, amping the suspense up to giddily terrifying heights. But none of these kinetic flourishes would matter if Mr. Lucas didn't explain why the pod race is important. The race won't just decide whether or not Anakin finally makes it to the finish line, it will decide whether or not Qui-Gon Jinn will win the parts necessary to get Queen Amidala's starship off of Tatooine so she can make the journey to Coruscant and insist that the Senate help drive the vile Trade Federation off of Naboo's soil. Before the race begins, Mr. Lucas raises the stakes even higher. In a last-minute gamble, Qui-Gon makes a bet that if Anakin prevails, will ensure the boy's freedom. 
While the plight of Naboo is abstract, the plight of Anakin is personal. Knowing that his fate hinges upon a single race makes us care about the outcome in a way that a scuffle over trade routes never could. Yet Anakin gets into his pod not knowing that victory will free him from bondage. He races simply because it's right. He may feel the need for speed, but his choice is at least partly selfless. His compassion is moving, and it sets him up for a fall. That is the story of the prequel trilogy. The story of how a little boy who raced for the fate of a planet he had never seen deteriorated into a selfish warlord named Darth Vader. So when I was 13, um, I started collecting Star Wars stuff, like, really heavily. And uh, even before that, but uh, when Episode One was announced and when the toys started getting released and the merch, I was all about it. And uh, Taco Bell and KFC and Pizza Hut were owned by the same company, and they all had Star Wars stuff, toys and bo pizza boxes that didn't say Pizza the Hut, um, just, like, all <laughs> kinds of... of um, all kinds of Star Wars promotion, getting it in your face, and I totally bought into it. So uh, I would drink Pepsi, and I would drink Storm, and I would drink any Pepsi product that had a Star Wars can because you had to collect all the cans that had a different character on each one of them. So I think it was Qui-Gon Jinn was on Storm, and it had like a little um, blurb about who he was. And I would buy these cans and read about the characters before the movie came out and get so amped up uh, and so, flash forward to a few years later, I have all this Star Wars stuff in my parents' basement. And uh, I decide, hey, I should go look at this. I haven't looked at this in a few years. Uh, and I have this really heavy uh, tub I open up. And um, it looked like somebody squirted maple syrup into the entire box. Because I was an idiot. <laughs> and I kept cans of carbonated soda in the bottom of the box completely <laughs> unopened and of course with the pressure eventually they all exploded <laughs> so uh, that's why if, if you uh, Star Wars collectors are on eBay you're not going to see a lot of unopened soda for some reason I thought what a great idea it would be to collect every possible dumb thing during Phantom Menace so I still have Pepsi and Storm cans which by the way Storm only lasted <laughs> a couple years but I kept cans I kept Taco Bell cups I kept Taco Bell bags. They had like, I don't know, like six different characters. And for some reason I thought, yes, this will be something either worth money someday or something I can use someday. Uh, so somewhere in a basement is a handful of Taco Bell bags. <laughs> and that's my sad story. You, you know, it's interesting you know, hear, hearing you talk about that, Josh, because, uh, you know, I was... Uh, I, I, like when the Phantom Menace, you know, came out you know i i had not yet like you know become a major star wars fan and i i didn't uh i i i i didn't even uh see it in the the, the theaters so i wasn't i wasn't like too like aware of the the merchandise and whatnot and yet like you know as you were describing all that you know it it reminded me of so many memories from when i i did get into the merchandise later you know a, a attack of the clones was you know the one for me where like i i bought you know like pretty much every single you know piece of Django fett crap because i was obsessed <laughs> you know like i still have like a little bust of, of Django fett that like dispenses these these little candies that i think are i think there's still a couple of them left in there they're probably like poisonous by now oh, gross <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> See, that's cool, though. That's practical. That's not keeping something just to keep it, you know? Because I also had action figures and stuff, but for some reason I thought cans and bags, too. Why not? But, you know, like you're... You know what you're everything you're talking about, you know, makes me kind of nostalgic about you know, for that sort of era of, you know, tangible Star Wars, you know, merchandise. Like I remember like, you know, before like a, a one of the movies had come out and you're know, going to the grocery store and, and seeing, you know, pictures of characters on like potato chip bags and stuff. And it, it seemed really exciting. And you know, be like, wow, can't wait to see that that movie. And just I don't know. It was like there's a there's a weird kind of joy in that and like I, I don't know maybe it, uh maybe it, it 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 feels diminished now because like there's so much you know online marketing or or maybe like i just uh they just you know don't sell enough star wars crap at new seasons and trader joe's you know <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's part of it for sure i mean a lot of Star Wars things were on uh, more common products. Lay's Potato Chips, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, KFC, right. Candy. But but I, it wouldn't be on granola bars or, or things that, that were less common. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where I'm going with that other than to say uh, it was everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. And, and it seems nefarious now, but back then it, it was, you're right, more comforting. When you're a kid, it's like... Oh my gosh, Star Wars is everywhere. And yes, I will eat that Star Wars candy. I had no idea that Storm was a thing before you brought it up. And now I'm just, I just love the idea that that exists. It's just, the whole thing is just, just so, so funny. And it's like, you know, like, I, it's, it sounds like the kind of thing that maybe, I don't know, there could be like a renaissance, you know, or like, I don't know, like, I'll bet you there's a, there's a blog out there about Storm or, or something. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean uh, it's no surge. Which uh, if you're not a big surge head, uh, <laughs> that's what we call ourselves. Um, they made a documentary, and you can go to I think Save Surge is the website, uh, and they they petitioned to bring it back, and eventually did. Uh, I think two years ago, so you can buy Surge in stores again. But Surge was special. It was uh, Coca-Cola's answer to Mountain Dew, whereas Storm was basically Sprite with caffeine. Um, which I, maybe there's a market for people who drink too much soda. Um, but yeah, I, I went on eBay, uh, before recording this and, uh, there was exactly one storm can for sale. Uh, nobody's bid on it yet, but it's going for about 11 bucks right now. If anyone wants one, <laughs> the 11 bucks is not that, that bad considering, you know, how long it's been, been out of biz. No. And that's the thing is I, I think when I collected, I thought, oh, this is my retirement plan. <laughs> I'm going to sell all 12 of these cans and make millions. Uh, so for me, um, <laughs> it was sobering to realize there's not always a market for every little niche yeah, Star Wars thing. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, other ridiculous things I saw, and, and I really highly suggest Googling this to anyone listening, was the Jar Jar Binks tongue candy. And I don't think that's what they called it, but it's uh, essentially a Jar Jar Binks plastic toy about the size of your hand that opens up its mouth and the tongue comes out oh, towards you and the tongue is made of candy <laughs> and you uh, lick or whatever you want to do with the tongue uh, and it, I feel so bad for all the parents that bought that for their kid and then they're like, oh my god, I've created a make-out monster. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah, please, I, I, wish I, could, I wish I could visually show that right now because to me that was the definition of Star Wars excess. Uh, even a couple of years ago, Mark Hamill named it uh, the worst Star Wars merchandise. 
for good reason. I'll I'll take his I'll take his word for it. I mean, if anyone should know, it's that guy. <laughs> oh yeah, ever the expert in candy. Um, I will say though, for all all the crappy Star Wars merchandise for Phantom Menace, one thing I think they got right was the video games. Uh, and there were several, but the one that sticks out for most people is Star Wars Episode One Racer, and it was a podcasting racing game. Or you could play as Anakin or Sebulba or all the other characters whose names I forget. Uh, and it was on uh, Nintendo 64 and Sega Dreamcast and also PC. Uh, and it really, really captured pod racing and like the speed. And it was so incredible. Except now when I play it, I can only get past the first level and then I just die immediately because it's way too fast. But uh, I, I still say, if you're into retro gaming, Episode One Racer still holds up today. I I just I just have to say that uh, I think one of my favorite moments in the pod race is uh, uh, when I, when a character who shares part of my name, uh, Ben Quadranero, oh, yeah. <laughs> when uh, when his his racer goes kablooey. I love it when the the two headed announcer says. Ooh, there goes Quadranero's power coupling, <laughs> which I think is uh, I think is one of the greatest euphemisms I've ever heard. You know, so oh, absolutely, I use that. it at least once a week. Yeah, no, I, I think it was genius getting. Um, oh, well, I was gonna say Greg Daniels. I think it's genius to get Greg Proops as one of the heads of the announcer. His voice is so perfect; just everything he says sounds a little sexual if you think yeah. about it. <laughs> And that that was and that was one of those kind of like I don't know sort of like stereotypical Phantom Menace you know things or, or characters that I actually feel like was you know a really kind of funny and, and goofy, charming addition that was you know like more in the, the the spirit of the original trilogy and not just you know straight up irritating like Jar Jar which like that 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 candy Jar Jar toy you're talking about like I feel like that's just the epitome of the the Jar Jar experience. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I love it. I love that some candy maker was like, we've got it, George. It's Jar Jar Binks, everyone's favorite new alien. Except he has a tongue that you lick. <laughs> I, it's, that's just one of those things where I imagine the board meeting and I imagine they're just like, yeah, fuck it. You know, we'll, we'll make anything uh, with Star Wars on it if you give us the money. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do have to say I'm uh, one of one of my favorite Star Wars merch possessions uh, is, is from the Phantom Menace. I have a uh, Qui-Gon's lightsaber, uh, well like a Ooh. a plastic kitty version and it feels a uh, it feels pretty damn good to, you know, hold hold that bad boy and you know, feel like <laughs> facing down Darth Maul. <laughs> <laughs> is Darth Maul your sister in this case? <laughs> well, the, n- no, well, I don't I can't I don't know if we've ever uh, had a a lightsaber duel, but we did uh one Halloween uh she dre- I she dressed up as Princess Leia and uh, I dressed up as as Darth Vader, so we did uh, we've had some shared star wars experiences in that regard <laughs> <laughs> nice nice as long as it's canon yes ex- exactly by all means <laughs> <laughs> well i mean that's that's all i got for the the for merchandise talk for phantom menace there's so much merchandise they made especially for phantom menace when people were still excited to see these movies and uh, they definitely scaled it back after phantom menace but um for me i i think that's the best part about dwelling on you know 1999 is 
how much of everything there was that was branded Star Wars. And, you know, you can go on and on. And I highly recommend checking out some of the fast food chain uh, toys and stuff because it got kind of ludicrous. Uh, I kind of talked about it earlier, but, like, uh, you would collect these, like, pog-sized things. Kind of like the McDonald's Monopoly game where you collect three or five of a certain one and then you win, you know, $500 or whatever. Um, and, and, and that kind of stuff to me is still just... That's clever marketing. That's like good use of the brand or whatever. But also, it's just so damn stupid to look at it now, you know, 21 years later. <laughs> I think, I think too, like it's it's interesting. Like I feel like the, the marketing like really depends on the, the films, you know, giving, you know, the, the marketing department like, like cool new things to, to put out there. I mean, like that was one of the things with like each of the prequels each time you know, there was, like, you know, something exciting and sexy that you could make a brand new toy out of, you know, whether it was Darth Maul or uh, Jango Fett or, or General Grievous, and I think that's one thing that's, that's that's kind of, you know, like, missing from the Star Wars experience now. Like, you, you look at the Rise of Skywalker, and it's like, yay, we'll make a Kylo Ren toy again, <laughs> you know, and, like... Or, or we'll make a we'll make a Palpatine toy, but he looks slightly older and more decrepit. Yay! Exciting! Get excited about this, kids. For for me, I think that uh, the the new trilogy, the sequel trilogy, um, got merchandise right because they had so long to think about it. Uh, and I'll talk about a you know a few episodes down the line when we get to that. But um, I, I think the thing they got right, which you're you're right, there was a lot of uh, you know retreading. But the thing they learned, I think, is there's the kids who still buy action figures and there's the adults who want to relive the past and they want something nicer. And I, I feel like they kind of tiered um, the toys and collectibles so that you could get a $10 plastic lightsaber or a crappy action figure or you could get a $300 lightsaber or a gigantic bust of Kylo Ren or whatever, you know. Um, I, I think they really... Um, made they they sort of segregated uh the merchandise into lower and upper tier stuff and i think that's uh, a really good move because i think it caters to every possible star wars audience this is the uh, the pen is mightier than the lightsaber where we kind of uh, eh, take a deeper look into just you know some of the storytelling craft that that goes into these movies and and i was I was struck looking back at the Phantom Menace, which, by the fact that you know, even though in many respects it's a it's a very badly written film, you know, specifically in terms of the dialogue, in terms of story structure, I think it's actually one of the best Star Wars films. And the the reason I think that is because I think there's a really strong tick and clock effect in the Phantom Menace, much more so than in the other two prequels. And I mean. Like, like when I say tick and clock, you know, I, I mean really any film like where there is um, there is a, a countdown essentially that looms over all the action. I mean, I mean a, a great example I think you know would be you know a semi recent blockbuster, uh, Sam Mendes's 1917, where these you know two young soldiers in World War One, they have to you know. Uh, walk across you know miles and miles of terrain to deliver a message 
you know, uh, calling off an attack or, you know, uh, over a thousand soldiers are going to be walking into a trap and be slaughtered. And so there's really, you know, there's a countdown that kind of lingers over the entire film. And, you know, you, you have that, um, the threat of these, you know, if they don't get there in time, all these soldiers will die. You have that lingering over even the, you know, seemingly, you know, quiet or less dramatic scenes. So it just, uh, it, it just, you know, gives the movie more drive, more energy. And I, I think, you know, that's really important in, in any film, you know, even, you know, like a seemingly, you know, low-key or ordinary drama like my favorite movie lost in translation you know that has a ticking clock as well because you know bill murray and scarlett johansson have to figure out you know what path their relationship is going to take before you know he leaves tokyo but the phantom menace i think does this really well because from the beginning you set up a, a ticking clock you know you have the trade federation spreading uh spreading across naboo you know putting uh, people in camps and basically queen amidala has to resolve this situation before you know like her people's entire way of life is completely eroded so there is an encroaching threat that kind of lingers over every scene and the really smart thing is that you know george lucas just like keeps piling up obstacle after obstacle to kind of like prevent the characters from getting what they want you know they escape the planet but you know they have a problem with the hyperdrive so they have to go to tatooine they find out that Watto has the part that uh, they need, but he can't sell it to them because he doesn't take Republic credits. You know, they uh, they find a way to get to the part, the part, but it means you know trusting Anakin, who, you know, it's like it's kind of you know suspect. You know, putting your fate in the hands of this kid you barely know, and even when everything goes right and they finally get to Coruscant, the Senate basically says, you know, fuck off, we don't want to deal with this, and then you know our heroes have to go back and and just you know hope that there'll be enough to turn the tide in the conflict and so i mean that that one thing the threat of the trade federation and uh like on naboo is really kind of like a nice unifying conflict that brings you know the whole narrative together and you look at uh i mean you compare that to attack of the clones where there is really no unifying force in that film like obi-wan's you know investigation of the clones and anakin and padme's romance you know those things feel very disjointed and there's not even like a, a clear threat to kind of bind all the scenes together because you you hear about count dooku but you don't even meet him until like way over halfway into the film so like it just you know the the phantom menace as bad as it is it is very like in some ways a kind of compact and elegant narrative and that, that was something that i think you know like got got lost in you know attack of the clones and revenge of the sith you know even though those films you know improved on phantom menace in some other respects so i you know i was just struck that like by the fact that as bad as the phantom menace is like i think like like it's actually a movie like i would tell a screenwriter to look at as an example of good story structure because there are lessons you can take that are are valuable and i i just i thought that was uh was kind of uh, ironic and, and kind of cool, really. It's so easy to shit on a movie that, that you can't give it accolades. And and I will say, like, the structure is great. I, I think, to me, episode one has always felt like the rough draft. And if they had a second pass at it and, and threw in a little more humor and uh, maybe got rid of some characters or combined characters uh, and, and maybe just prioritized... Um, 
sort of the mission as the main story points, you know, with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan um, and, and less about the politics. I, I think you can introduce the politics and not make it super boring. I, I, to me, it's like they they didn't need to explain as much as they did. They could have just had another character uh, talk about some of the politics here and there. And then you could think, oh, I see there's a Senate and this is happening, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Yeah. But no, you're, you're totally right. Um, that sort of um, installed deadline um, kind of works for the movie. You know, we, uh, we, we got to do this by this time. We got to do this before this. Um, that sounds really big. <laughs> no, but you're right. And I remember, cause I remember when, when you were talking about, you know, rewatching the films and, you know, like you, you, you saying that like upon rewatch, you, you found that you enjoyed the Phantom Menace more than, uh, Attack of the Clones. And like, I, like, I wonder if like that, you know, could be, I mean, obviously, you know, you can speak to, you know, whether this is, you know, true or not, but. I wonder if, like, the story structure is, is part of, you know, why that is. Because, you know, you have two very flawed films. But but one is this very, like, you know, kind of, uh, like, like actually in spite of its flaws, you know, pretty suspenseful engaging. And the other is, like, this, you know, weird mess where the final act is just, you know, kind of CGI puke, you know, spewing across the street screen, basically. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> But yeah, you're right. I I did like uh, Phantom Menace better than Attack of the Clones, and I I won't get into it too much till next episode. But um, yeah, I I think the structure helps, and also um, sort of knowing what the set pieces are when they're happening, um, it's easier to feel like you have a reason to keep watching. Yes. Yeah. Well, and also I I, I just I I want to go back for a second to your point about how the Phantom Menace kind of feels like the first draft and i just think there are so many things that you know like so many changes that almost instantly would make the movie better like for instance if you uh if you change anakin's age from nine to 19 then in one stroke you've like solved a lot of the problems not only with the phantom menace but with the entire trilogy and you've solved the problem of having you know two different actors play the same character and and the, the kind of disjointed feeling of that like i mean it's amazing how simple these fixes would have been really no you're completely right and also it's like if if you were going to show darth vader as a kid you need to show more as a kid why there were shades of darth vader in him yeah whereas he's just a great kid and everything he does is great yeah. and, and that doesn't work <laughs> so yeah i agree make him 17 make him 18 19 years old and he's a bit of a hot shot now, and you can tell there's a darkness, and that would work still. He can still care about his mother and still make these sacrifices without it being as cloying. Yeah, like I feel like, like what would have made sense is like, like kind of a, kind of some something like you know more, a character more like James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause, like this, this guy you know who has a has a dark side and is you know like kind of you know roguish, but at the same time you know, has a, has a moral compass, but you see the things that, you know, could erode that, you know, down the line. I mean, I, I feel like it would have been nice to see, you know, some traces of, of Anakin's selfishness, you know, whereas it feels like, you know, you get into uh, clones and all of a sudden you feel like you're looking at a completely different character and not just because he's 10 years older and he's played by a, you know, a, 
a different, you know, arguably worse actor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot to be said about the idea. Uh, is episode one necessary? Uh, I mean, ultimately, in the scheme of things, no, it's not. But it would have been awesome if it was a necessary film. I think that if if the arc started when he's older, uh, it would be such a more compelling story. Yeah. And then episode two wouldn't be as much about, oh, and by the way, he's now a shitty teenager. Instead, it would be like, uh, it would be able to, uh, to build up on what we've already seen and what Anakin's proclivities towards darkness really mean. Well, so let me, let me ask you this then, because there's a, I mean, there's that kind of famous quote from George Lucas where he says that, you know, the prequel trilogy has now flipped the original trilogy on its head where, you know, it used to be, you know, you, you, you look at Darth Vader first, you know, coming down the corridor of Tantive Four in A New Hope, and you go like, oh my god, this, this monster, and then, and, and then he said like, well now you look at it and you go like, oh my god, Anakin's still stuck in that suit, I mean, is that, I mean, do you think that kind of like reveals the problems of the prequels right there, that the story is more powerful if we kind of see you know, Anakin slash Vader as this monster, and then we gradually realize there is humanity in him as, as opposed to, like, having that knowledge beforehand? Yeah, no, I mean, the prequel trilogy doesn't really work on its own as, like, a compelling story uh, at all. If, if for some reason you live in a bubble and you've only watched the prequel trilogy first, which I, I know a lot of younger people start out that way now... Um. I just don't see it as a compelling story at all. It's, oh, he turned into Darth Vader. And then when you watch episode four, um, it doesn't seem like it could possibly be the same character at all. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I think it I think it does. And also, I think it's it. I mean, the truth is that, you know, whatever, you know, George Lucas may say, you know, uh, A New Hope just feels like the beginning. I mean. I mean, you know, you have at the beginning of the Phantom Menace, you know, characters, you know, mentioning the Force, you know, specifically Qui-Gon and, you know, maybe kind of explaining what it is in passing, but nowhere, you know, near to the extent that Obi-Wan, you know, explains it, you know, beautifully in A New Hope. So, you know, there's... And also more spiritually than, say, scientifically, too. Exactly. Where even though you don't understand at all what he really means, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, which, and I think that, you know, kind of unknowability is more powerful, you know, if the Force can be, uh, you know, whatever you imagine it to be. I mean, luminous beings, are we not this crude matter? That, you know, doesn't work if, you know, if you change the line to, you know, we're luminous beings who draw our power from midi-chlorians, not this crude matter, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that scene in particular, where where uh, Qui Gon explains midichlorians, is sort of the the microcosm of the entire episode one, which is uh, if you explain how something came to be, that doesn't make it better. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that's all I got on that. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Yeah. Well, this wouldn't be a Star Wars podcast if we didn't attempt to do a Star Wars voice. So uh, apologies in advance. Uh, but Ben, do you have a Star Wars voice that you feel like you like can nail? Y- yes. So, I mean, you know, the, the funny thing I, I think about doing Star Wars voices is like, 
you don't you don't you don't choose the ones that you know you you, you happen to be able to do accurately like in my case you know i i i can do very few of the the cool characters successfully but what i can do is a uh, is uh, at least from my perspective i can do newt gunray so i'll uh I'll, I'll give that a go okay trigger warning for all our viewers yeah yes race. exactly <laughs> <laughs> as you know our blockade is perfectly legal and we would be happy to receive ambassadors Oh, it's awful. I know. It, it's, oh, it's awful. It's, it's bad. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think we, we have to talk about how problematic some of the stereotypes in episode one are. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's and so and bad. I think yeah. I think that is uh, one of the main offenders. And, and as educated people, we know this. But um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it still astounds me when watching it today. Like, wow, they were just <laughs> they went for it. Yeah. No, there's a lot of really bad, uh, bad ones. I mean, I I feel like uh, I I feel like like you know, Watto is a is particularly offensive. Like, just that's it's just I, I don't know. I mean, I know you know I I I mean the tricky thing with some of these stereotypes is like you know I think people like you know have different interpretations of you know in some cases who they're uh, uh, offensive to. Like, I mean, like my my you know personal you know feeling is that you know Watto is on multiple levels like just an incredibly offensive anti-semitic stereotype I, I think for me the ultimate problem is these movies are still quote-unquote modern and they're from George Lucas's mind and you think if he doesn't know that he made a bad movie then he certainly doesn't know that he also uh, is creating these stereotypes that are reinforcing in people's mind uh some terrible stereotypes oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah and i think i think especially too like it just it feels like a, a step down like you know i'm not gonna you know pretend that the original trilogy was a you know a, a model of in inclusiveness but you know it, i mean it does feel like a step down like after seeing you know kind of this uh you know in return of the jedi this this multi-species you know coalition of of humans and and ewoks and and mong calamari and you know other aliens you know taking on you know the the you know imperial army of white british dudes <laughs> you know it's like it just it, it feels like the phantom menace is you know a, a major you know you know step backward after you know what what i personally at least view as the you know relative progressiveness of return of the jedi Right. Yeah. No, I, I think there is a, there's a little more thought put into those films, whereas episode one, to me, it felt like George Lucas's shorthand, like, oh, we'll have a, a Mexican haggling mechanic guy. That's oh, bad. <laughs> you know, I mean, like all the bad guys having these accents uh, is not a good look, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you uh, wait? What's do you have a voice to do, Josh? <laughs> Uh, I sober. I have no Star Wars voices now. Now, if I'm drinking a little bit, I feel like there's a point in time where I get in the groove and I can kind of do it like a Yoda. Uh, my friend Robert claims that he can do um, Jar Jar Binks really well, but he's too embarrassed to do it unless he's drunk. So every time we drink, even at one beer, I'm like, "Hey, uh, let's let's hear that Jar Jar," and he never does it. But my Yoda, um, I, I would say it, it's a passable, you know, four out of ten. 
uh, even when I'm drinking. <laughs> but I, I'll do it for you and for the audience because I care. Uh, so sorry in advance. <clears throat> Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. <coughs> Fear leads to anger. Oh man, that tears your voice up. That, that's all you get. <laughs> you get a little sneak peek. You don't get the whole experience. You gotta watch the Phantom Menace for that. <laughs> I think Frank Oz would be be proud. I felt like I was sitting in the Jedi Council chamber, you know, listening uh, listening to Yoda. Yoda cut me down to size. You're a really perfect. good liar. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, as far as episode one specific characters, uh, I think that's as good as it gets. <laughs> the other one I can think that I even like, you know, have a I could get like even close. I guess I guess maybe like maybe Anakin. You know, I I always like you know trying to imitate. Are you an angel? <laughs> you you know I'm a, You know what else works? I'm haunted by the kiss you never should have given me. My heart is beating, hoping that kiss will not become a I, scar. I like that your your uh your version of Hayden Christensen sounds like James Dean, like when he's getting emotional. <laughs> and I don't mean that as an insult. I no, I, I do not. I don't take it as an insult at all. <laughs> all right, so that's our show. You can find me on Twitter at I am Josh O. And where can people find you, Ben? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at T-H-O Bennett. That's uh, Bennett with two N's and two T's. And also highly recommend uh, Ben's other series. Oh, uh, the, the, the Spidey Scenes uh, podcast, which uh, features a, a off, sometimes features a, a great guest by the name of Josh O'Rourke, who you may Incredible have synergy. Incredible synergy going on here. Yes, yeah. Now this is now this is like good like cross brand, you know, action. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what Lucas they say. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh and then also THO film reviews. Oh, THO movie reviews dot uh Highly recommended. Uh no news, just reviews. Thank you for that. <laughs> That's it for me. That's it for Vin. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, as always, please tune in next week where we deep dive into each and every episode and then some of Star Wars. And the Force will be with you. Always.